know you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, Far Far Away family? Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives. So how's everyone doing today? I hope everything is going well on your side of the galaxy. Nothing new out here on the Outer Rim. So today, we're going to be talking about Brotherhood, and we're also going to be talking about the latest developments in the Star Wars universe. From the upcoming episode of The Mandalorian to the recent omission from Disney CEO Bob Iger about the future of the movies. There's a lot to discuss before we get to the book. So first, let's talk about Mandalorian. As you may already know, the next episode is set to be longer, clocking in at 56 minutes, that's without the credits, which should be enough story to set the tone for the rest of the season. While the first two episodes had some exciting wow moments, they were somewhat lacking in depth. As such, a longer, more in-depth episode is exactly what we need right now. But while we await this exciting new installment of Mandalorian, news has emerged that it's good and bad at the same time. It seems that Disney CEO Bob Iger has admitted that the studio is being very careful about the future of the Star Wars movies. Following the disappointed box office return of Solo, in Bob's appearance at the Morgan Stanley Technology Media and Telecom Conference, Iger stated that the box office failure of Solo has given us pause, and that executives had determined that maybe the timing was a little too aggressive. While Disney is still in development of Star Wars films, the CEO made it clear that they are being extremely careful about which projects they do. In Iger's words, we are going to make sure when we make a movie, it's the right one. So we are being very careful there. This news comes as a shock to many Star Wars fans who have been eagerly anticipating a movie to come out soon. Solo, which followed the early adventures of Han Solo and Chewbacca, was released in 2018 to lackluster reviews and disappointing box office performance, making less than 400 million worldwide. 400 million, and they're complaining about that. This marks the first time that a Star Wars movie had bombed in the box office, and it seems to have a profound impact to the studio's approach to movies. As Star Wars fans, we can only hope that Disney will take the necessary time and care to develop the right project for our beloved franchise but at the same time, not taking so long that we all go crazy. In the meantime, we can look forward to the next episode of The Mandalorian, which promises to be an exciting and informative installment in this epic saga. So now let's jump back into Brotherhood, because when we left off last week, Rugen Obi-Wan had a little talk when she came to see him in his cell. They both agreed that they didn't like Ventress and that the Republic was not to blame for the bombing. Now they were going to have to work together to unravel the truth, even if it meant that Rue would have to betray her people in order to save her people. So let's see what's happening now. Anakin Skywalker. Seven total bombs. It took all day and then some, but R2-D2 felt reasonably confident that he had identified all of the bombs and their locations. While Anakin and Mill set out to defuse the first one, R2-D2 examined the locations of the next two. A simple extrapolation using the droid's computational skills, combined with, Anakin admitted, R2-D2's strong instincts for being right, built out options for five, seven, or nine bombs, all attached to landmarks of local significance. An elaborate statue that reached up and touched the floor of a transparent steel restaurant hanging down from an overhead arch. A building that by official standards was the oldest in Zara. An immaculately constructed tower adjacent to the large official courtyard of Obi-Wan's trial. And others along those lines. 
Each seemed to be something that might have caught a simple glance from a traveler, but carried more meaning to local residents. And for someone from the Republic, they represented a crash course in cultural legacy and history. Details that the Jedi archives somehow overlooked. The bombs surrounded the government offices, and R2-D2 projected a map, lines crossing to make the target quite clear that these explosions were designed as a message. Because at the center of it all lay the courtyard where Obi-Wan would be on trial, the so-called Grand Theater of Judgment. And all of the targets themselves stood within viewing distance. In fact, the tall tower loomed over the large square, which promised a public hollow viewing of the trial. Whoever the terrorist was, all of this played out as some sort of twisted representation of the Republic. Were the bombs intended to go off before Obi-Wan's trial? To push his verdict straight to guilty? During the trial, to frame his statements in destructive chaos? After his trial, as punishment of some sort for whatever way the verdict broke? Every option seemed possible. And these were things Anakin often left to Obi-Wan to figure out. Anakin was more of the impossible deeds with a lightsaber at high altitudes and long jumps type of Jedi Knight. But Obi-Wan's thoughtful analysis and strategic mind would have put this puzzle together. Something else was at play here. Though who they were and what their exact purpose was, he still wondered. R2-D2's analysis remained on the purely technical side. The explosive capabilities of the bombs, the type of compound used, the range of the detonator sensor. But that didn't necessarily dive into criminal psychology. And while Mill gained more control over her abilities with each passing moment, her unique sensory vision didn't help with this task. Though, as Anakin noted with a little bit of pride... She picked up the technical bits of bomb disarmament fast, despite having a completely different upbringing from Anakin's own early days fixing things in Watto's junkyard. By the time they finished the seventh bomb and scouted a tiring radius all around the governmental district, the droid claimed with 93% probability that they'd covered all the possibilities. Percentages were usually the realm of C-3PO, and Anakin assumed R2-D2 rounded the numbers as he sat with an exhausted mill, day having turned into night. With the chrono ticking until crowds would gather for Obi-Wan's trial, Anakin had to decide between trying to get to Obi-Wan now or indulging in what little rest they could. But practicality won out. They might not find Obi-Wan in time, and if that was the case, they'd have to help him at the trial. Which meant they needed to be ready. After moving the ship from the public port to a less conspicuous warehouse district on the outskirts, they found a spot underneath a bridge in a quiet sector halfway to the governmental district, a place where commerce blended with residential housing. They sat against stone, R2-D2 keeping watch. Mill slept, leaning against Anakin, her thin black ponytail draped over his shoulder. Exhaustion took her over, and even if Anakin wanted to keep pushing forward, she would have passed out. 
having nudged her body to the limit. As for Anakin, he wanted to keep one eye open the entire time, but R2-D2 nagged him to rest, beeping messages about how his timing and strength would be off if he was too exhausted to fight or run. While the astromech droid kept a running scan on their surroundings, Anakin closed his eyes, and though he tried to get into a restful meditation, something deeper and more regenerative than sleep, his mind kept turning back to the mystery of the bombs. Not so much who planted them, but why were they all connected? And what was the meaning behind each target? No answers arrived during Anakin's rest, though the mental space allowed his spirit to recharge a little bit. Mildo still seemed to fight with exhaustion, and perhaps the emotional whiplash of going from a simple training assignment to Fate of the Republic tasks wore on her more than she wanted to admit. By the time they'd gathered their bearings and emerged from their hiding spot, the population of Zara walked with purpose to the main square. If Anakin hadn't known differently, the scene would have felt more akin to a local festival or holiday celebration. The only shift came from the attitude of the attendees. While something more joyous would have laughter and singing, the citizens moving past Anakin, Milanar to D2 carried a collective weight on their shoulders, many wearing frowns or looking at the ground, and most draped in deep blue clothes, which Anakin took to be a mourning custom. Though Anakin didn't speak pack-pack, the tone of the conversations conveyed enough. Anger, blame, regret, longing. All of those things came through simply from the volume and rhythm of the words between people. Some of the city's non-Namodian residents didn't express their sentiments in basic, and they didn't hide their thoughts about what they wanted. And if Anakin wasn't sure, Mill's expression reflected their mood. Her empathic abilities chipping away at her already exhausted body. Stay strong, he said to her as they walked. She looked up and nodded, and he hoped a reassuring smile might buoy her sagging spirits. The physical toll of all this colliding with the emotional wave from the emerging crowd. Her ability to control her connection with the Force had grown significantly, and what would have once crippled her now moved in step with her an extension of her abilities, rather than a hindrance. Sink or swim, he thought, and Mills swam stronger than he would have ever hoped, given the way their first encounter went. Even though the trial centered on Obi-Wan, and by extension the Republic, it became clear that it didn't matter who was involved. This community had sustained a deep and irreparable wound. Grief and trauma were on trial and the people wanted justice in whatever form they could take it. Their mourning demanded it. I can feel it, like walking through a stream. Mill took steady steps and her eyes focused ahead. The nausea that aided her before seemingly transformed. Not just what they're feeling, but how they're feeling it. They have lost friends, family, Partners. Children. She looked up at Anakin, a ray of sun lighting her brown eyes. This comes outside of the war. 
Their pain is no different from that of the people on Langston. They don't deserve this. That can't be our concern right now. Anakin paused, wondering if that sounded heartless. It wasn't meant to. Padme would have cared about the civilians the same way. But all of that had to be tampered with the mission. What I mean is, we have a duty to do right by the Republic. To the Chancellor. To Obi-Wan. What about them? Mill asked. For the first time, a rise came to her voice. What do they deserve? They deserve the truth. And if anyone can find the truth, it's Obi-Wan. Anakin stopped and surveyed the scene. The seven bomb locations were all visible, all forming a perimeter around the central location of the trial. He paused, and the urges pulled at him to just get on with it, to ignore whatever complaints Mill had. Something pushed back, settling him down easier than whenever he butted heads with Obi-Wan. Hear them. Each of these people... They may not matter to governments when the galaxy is at war, but they should matter to us. Anakin nodded, closing his eyes to listen. He didn't use the Force, didn't attempt anything akin to Mill's abilities. He simply took in what he'd heard. The voices and emotions coming out from generations of mourning all pulling toward the town square. Mill was right. Regardless of what happened in conference rooms and political centers across countless star systems, the individuals who suffered the consequences were often overlooked, ignored. And though some of them cursed at Obi-Wan at the Republic, Anakin reminded himself that those words simply funneled their pain into something tangible. Obi-Wan's job would be to redirect that with the truth. And Anakin's job would be to help him. For the Republic and these people. Okay, this was a very short part. It starts with Anakin and Mill and R2-D2 finding and disarming all of the bombs, which they do, but it took a lot of time. Mill is about to pass out from exhaustion and Anakin is trying to figure out the whole plot of everything. Why would somebody plant bombs in these locations? And when were they planning to blow them up? Before Obi-Wan's trial? To make sure he gets a guilty verdict? Or after as a penalty of the verdict? Making the Republican Obi-Wan look worse. And then things start to get mushy, with Mill's telepathic ability causing her to worry about the people of Kadon Omordia. She is able to feel their pain and loss, which causes her to lose sight of the mission. It shifts her focus to their issues, which what happens to the Nymordians is important, but that's not what they are there to do. They are there to rescue Obi-Wan, something that Anakin has to remind her of, which in turn she reminds him of the people of Cato Namordia. And that's where this part comes to an end. And I'm not going to say I didn't like this part, but I'm not going to say I liked it either. We all know how I feel about these type of parts, so we're just going to get to the quote of the week. And it comes to us from Albert Schwarzer. He said success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you are doing, you will be successful at it. This quote tells us that success and happiness are not the same thing, and true success can only be achieved if you find happiness in what you do. It implies that happiness should come first, and success will follow as a result of pursuing what you love. It is also believed that you should not kill your dreams, desires, and happiness while on the path to success. Let me tell you a story about a longtime friend of mine named Alex. Alex was a smart and hardworking guy his whole life, and he wanted to be a doctor. He never came out and partied with us, and he always was studying. 
I encouraged him to keep on working hard. He had to work hard to get to where he wanted to do. But as time went by, Alex started to feel unhappy. He realized that he was good at science and math, but he really didn't enjoy them. He found himself daydreaming about other things that he would rather be doing, like playing music or writing stories. His parents and me and all of his other friends tried to keep him focused on his goals. And at first, Alex tried to ignore these feelings and kept working to become a doctor. He thought that success in his career would make him happy, even if he wasn't passionate about it. But as time went on, he found himself becoming more and more miserable. He would tell me that he felt like he was stuck on a path that he didn't really want to do. I told him that he was crazy. Then one day, Alex heard this very quote. He thought about what it meant, and he realized that he had been doing things backwards. He had been trying to achieve success first, thinking that happiness would follow. But now he realized that he needed to find happiness first, and success would come as a result. Alex decided to follow his heart and pursued his love for music and writing. He started taking music lessons and writing stories in his free time. At first, it was hard for him to balance his schoolwork with his hobbies, but he found that he was much happier than he had been before. As he continued to pursue his passion, Alex found that success followed naturally. He won a couple awards for his music composition and even got some of his stories published in magazines. People started recognizing him for his talents, and he felt fulfilled in ways that he had never felt before. Alex realized that the quote was true. Happiness was really the key to success when he was doing what he loved. He felt motivated and inspired to work harder and improve. He didn't need external validation or praise to feel successful because he was already happy with what he was doing. And let me just say that Alex has a bold ton of money now and more awards than I can count. Several books that are bestsellers and this shows us how happiness and success are closely connected. When we do what we love, we are more likely to feel happy and fulfilled, which in turn leads to success. It is important to pursue your passions and not sacrifice our happiness for the sake of achieving external goals. When we prioritize our happiness, success will naturally follow. If Alex would have followed what his parents and I said, he would have never became the author and composer he became. If I would have took over my family's auto body shop, I would have never accomplished what I did. This quote tells us that success is a byproduct of happiness and one should not sacrifice their happiness for success. To live a happy life, one should not worry too much about what others say, be true to themselves, and do what makes them happy. From that, success will come. As long as you work hard on what you love to do, you will be successful. Okay, that's all I got for this episode. Join us next week for part 39 of Star Wars Brotherhood. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel. Star Wars Brotherhood was read to you by Jason O'Dagan. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>